is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden traveling across the Atlantic to meet with NATO allies in Brussels to discuss the war in Ukraine. The president is floating the idea of more sanctions as the U.S. government has now formally declared that members of the Russian armed forces have committed war crimes. And we're finding out the Pentagon is giving the White House options to add more troops in Eastern Europe. We'll go in-depth into how the U.S. plans to stop and further punish Russia. The FBI warning that Russian cyber hackers are cyber casing some energy companies and other big businesses here in the U.S. And we will head back to Ukraine to talk about a dog, but not just any dog. It's a traveling dog and an Instagram star who's stuck with her owners trying to stay safe. Governor Newsom signing a new law to make abortions cheaper for some women seems to be one of the many laws that could be passed here and elsewhere ahead of a Supreme Court's ruling that could overturn Roe v. Wade. Moderna says its COVID vaccine works for the little kids. Uh, Could they soon be able to get their shots? The Oscars are Sunday. Hollywood getting ready for the big night. Uh, Will the show return to its flash and grand ways with COVID still around uh, and also the war in Ukraine? We'll look into whether things will get political. But we start with President Biden meeting with NATO allies. CBS News reporter Stephen Portnoy is in Brussels now and joins us. Stephen, thanks for being with us. What exactly is on the president's agenda? It is a packed schedule, Charles. Tomorrow the president is going to have a very long day. He's just about to arrive here in Brussels, where it is shortly after 9 p.m. here in Central Europe. The president is going to be meeting tomorrow with the NATO allies. He's going to be meeting with the G7 partners. He's going to be meeting with the European Union as well. And then in the evening, he's going to hold a press conference here. So this is all part of an effort on the White House's part to demonstrate, along with the president's counterparts, that the Western world stands united, looking east to Moscow and essentially staring down Vladimir Putin. The White House has said that the president wants to accomplish a few things here. One, he's going to announce, as you've suggested, new sanctions, along with the G7, NATO, and EU partners. Two, he's going to announce measures to strengthen the existing sanctions to avoid the opportunity for other countries to help Russia skirt them. And uh, three, he's going to talk about ways that Russia can reduce its dependence on, uh, rather, Europe can reduce its dependence on Russian energy sources such as coal, oil, and natural gas. We can also add a number four to that, right, which is preparing for what could happen after this. you got to prepare for the here and now. you got to work out what you're doing. But if Russia moves against some other country, if it uses chemical or biological weapons, they've got to kind of get ready and outline what their reaction is going to be so they don't have to decide it then. Before the president left Washington this morning, Mike, he was asked how real this prospect is of Russia using chemical or, biolo- or, or, or biological weapons in Ukraine. And he said it, he, he views it as a real threat. Uh, the uh, president is also expected to uh, discuss the potential for a new NATO force posture in Eastern Europe. And this goes to what you were talking about in the lead up to the segment, the idea that uh, options being presented to the president to perhaps move more American troops to the eastern flank countries that are part of the NATO alliance. When he's here in Europe, On Friday, the president is expected to travel to Poland. And part of the schedule has the president, either on Friday or Saturday, meeting with some American troops who happen to be in in this area. Uh, The White House says he'll be engaging with those troops and thanking them for uh, what they're doing, which at the moment is uh, essentially bolstering uh, the, the NATO alliance and giving assurance to the NATO partners. 
And he's also going to be paying attention on Friday and Saturday to the humanitarian crisis that has developed as a result of Putin's unprovoked aggression on Ukraine. Millions of people have had to flee that country and are being embraced by their neighbors. You know, we're talking about uh, the the allies being uh, together on this, and, and this is, of course, a show of support with the president being there, but they're not together on, on all things, right? I mean, when it comes to gas and oil uh, exports uh, from uh, Russia into Western Europe, countries like Germany are reluctant to really toe the line when it comes to that because it's going to hurt their economy. Is that uh, part of the president's agenda to try to convince more reluctant Western allies that they need to be maybe even harder on Russia? This will be a key part of the president's statements when he makes them starting tomorrow at NATO uh, and also uh, with the EU. This idea of reducing Europe's dependence on Russian sources of energy. Uh, The White House so far has not been able to offer much in the way of specifics, except to say that the U.S. stands ready to provide more in the way of liquefied natural gas to Europe. Uh, So it it has less of a reliance on on Russia. But there's no doubt that uh, it's difficult. And the White House acknowledges this, the difficulty in uh, trying to convince Europe to turn off the spigot. Because, you know, for Europe to, to thrive, it needs to rely on that source of energy. CBS News correspondent Stephen Portnoy in Brussels. Stephen, thank you. We are hearing from regular people. We have been hearing from regular people in Ukraine who have been sharing their experiences during the war. Before it all started, Christina and Eugene and their famous rescue dog, Chapati, were traveling the world, documenting their experiences. Chapati, they say, is the world's most traveled dog, visiting 40 countries already and becoming a star on Instagram. But since the war started, the three had to leave Kiev to a safer place in the country and put their lives on hold. Christina and Eugene are with us now. The dog is not. <laughs> Christina and Eugene, thanks for being with us. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Good afternoon. So, Hi there. Hello. So tell us a little bit about, uh, I, I presume that you're somewhere in western Ukraine now because uh, it's safer there, but maybe not. Uh, tell us a little bit about Japati and uh, what that story is all about. So we are in Kropivnitsky right now, right in the middle of Ukraine. It's safely here, so that's why we flew to this place. About Chapati, she's a rescue dog from India. Five years ago, we went for a huge trip, like nine-month trip with a uh, one-way ticket to India. And we found her right on the second day, being on that huge trip. And we found her as a dying puppy, and we couldn't stand by. We couldn't just walk past her, and we wanted to help. That's why we took her and started to nurse her back to life. And uh, shortly we understood that it's our dog and uh, we are doomed to be together. We took her and started our travels. And uh, it all happened step by step, country by country. And then we made an Instagram account, named her Traveling Chapati. And that was our destiny to travel together and to share the stories. That is so sweet. It's such a great story. And, and 40 countries, is that right? That's that's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's the record holder of India and Ukraine and the most traveled dog. <laughs> okay, so now, of course, uh, your, your traveling has come to a rather abrupt end, I take it, at least for the time being. So tell us what's happening to uh, all of your lives now that the war is ongoing. As you said, our lives stopped. Like, we don't have any 
nowadays we don't have any future we don't even have a past we just everything broke and uh, we're just living day by day like doing nothing because i mean we're doing some stuff but uh, everything is uh, basically just trying to survive reading news trying to figure out what's gonna happen volunteering but we we are doing nothing for our future because as for now our lives are stolen they are stolen from us how long did it take you to get out of kiev to where you're you're going and and what is the general plan i mean everything is on hold as you say but I mean, what is that like to kind of not even know what your next steps are rather than just getting someplace and then trying to be as safe as possible because that place is at least a little bit safer than where you're from Yeah, we managed to uh, leave Kiev right on the first day after the shelling and all these bombings we uh, had early in the morning. So we just took our belongings, whatever we can uh, pack in one hour, and we left. And uh, after that, everything is just uh, trying to help somehow all uh, our troops and all volunteers who are actually involved very well in everything that's going to happen is happening here and uh, what we want to do is just to make sure we can like we do everything possible to have this uh, war over and uh, the only possibility for ukraine to stop this war is to win this war because uh, putin is a guy like a bully who won't stop by himself all the world needs to be united and uh, staying strong to overcome his crazy ideas. As you know, millions uh, of Ukrainians have left the country. Why have you both elected to uh, stay? Unfortunately, we didn't have um, any options because uh, martial law was applied and uh, it restricts men who are aged between 18 years to 60 years old. These men cannot leave Ukraine. And as Eugene is between this age, he cannot leave Ukraine. So only I and Chapati can do that. But we are not going to live without him <laughs> because we are a family. We are always And it's together. also important to be here, to involve, to help somehow. Because uh, when people like when men flew out of country, it's not going to give any extra moral to the troops. And uh, our army needs to understand that there are people behind them. It's very important for the moral of the army. And is that inspiring to see for you guys, too? And when you when you do volunteer and you, you notice everybody else is helping out and, and the, the streak continues, every person that we've talked to is doing something to try and help. Every every interview we've had, every person who's, who's talked to us, when you Absolutely. see everybody trying so hard, what goes through your mind? We always knew that uh, Ukrainian people will never surrender we will fight back, we, we will fight for our freedom, for our country, because uh, our nation is a nation of brave people who can unite, especially in hard times, during hard times. And yes, we see uh, like everybody is involved, Every, everyone do whatever he can during these hard times. And it's uh, like a, a great uh, story of uh, uh, people who are like fighting to get their lives and uh, their freedom back. We uh, began our discussion talking about uh, your famous dog, Chapati. I'm wondering, you know, animals sometimes can play a role, too, uh, in things like wars. Uh, is Chapati playing a role? 
of course she does. I mean, uh, her main role is uh, having all these uh, uh, people who are following her. We're telling the story because uh, we have an enormous amount of uh, followers from India. And uh, as you may know, India is uh, like uh, has uh, such kind of a tricky position in, in this war because they somehow depend depends on the Russia on Russia military uh, uh, they buy some weaponry from Russia and that's why they're not condemning what's happening here they are trying to be neutral and uh, this is absolutely uh, in the proper position for any country uh, in the civil world. That's why we are talking to our Indian subscribers. We are telling the stories. We are trying to um, involve them and to somehow tell the politicians of India about what's happening here. So because uh, their media, they uh, don't cover the situation that much. Yeah, so at least we uh, use Chapati's uh, social media in order to uh, translate to people the real situation which happens here. Because we understand that in India, they don't have that much news which uh, are showing the real situation. I was on the page going through the comments and there were people who were so worried about you guys because you hadn't posted in a couple of days. And they're saying it's been four days. Any updates? What's going on with you? What's that like to have that kind of support coming in or people worried about you from from all over the world? It's uh, amazingly supportive, but, you know, still uh, when a regular person faces war, uh, it's... Um, it's a real nightmare and uh, your emotions are like a roller coaster. You can feel uh, dozens of different emotions during even one hour. And there are also different stages of how you perceive the situation. And, you know, at times you can be more um, inspired. inspired and believing that everything is going to be good someday. But unfortunately, at times, uh, you can be really depressed and you can feel helpless. So we had a few of this type of days when we could do nothing, you know. Yeah. Christina, Eugene, our best to you and uh, our best to Chapati, the uh, the Instagram dog. And thanks so much for talking to us and sharing what you're doing there. And uh, and, and do stay safe. Yeah, interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. And all of uh, them have been everyone. We've especially to, the you know. part when they were saying, you know, we're, we're getting some breach because the dog's got followers in India. And it doesn't matter how you get in, but they're getting that message through. Right. Through the dog's account. So um, amazing. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felder. President Biden recently warned companies watch out for Russian cyber attacks in retaliation to the sanctions, the U.S., uh, the response to the war in Ukraine. Now the FBI is warning Russian hackers have been scanning the networks of at least five energy companies and 18 other defense, financial services, and IT firms. Now this raises questions about how much damage these hackers could do if they gained access to a few of those big companies. With us is cybersecurity expert Damon Petraglia. He's head of the Cybercrime Center at the Henry Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences at the University of New Haven in Connecticut. Thanks for being with us, Damon. So how dangerous of a situation could this be? 
Well, it all depends on how you look at it. Um, it could be extremely dangerous and it could be a long-term thing. It all depends on what they might use against us and what we have as far as uh, remediation or uh, security in place. Okay, let's start with the scanning of the networks and the systems, which kind of occurs to me like that's probably something they've done before. This is not their first sweep through, right? These are the Russians. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. They're, they're doing this 24-7. Uh, this is nothing new. Um, so I, I think most people don't understand that. All, all systems are being probed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So this is really nothing new. If there's a warning about it, then there's either been an uptick in a specific type of probe or a variant of a probe, probably. Okay. And uh, and I also presume that we do the same to them and have been doing the same to them for quite some time. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So if if you're a Russian and you want to create havoc here to sort of pay us back for the the sanctions uh, that we've imposed and we've led uh, Western allies to impose on them, what would be the choice targets? Choice targets would would be within the critical infrastructure sector, right? Um, right now, gas prices are through the roof, right? Imagine uh, stopping uh, pipelines at this point. That would, that would create a, a tremendous amount of chaos. Uh, that would be great. Uh, from their perspective. So any one of these critical infrastructure would be a target, but not the critical infrastructure itself. Um, they're probably going to go after the third-party providers and the supply chains. That's what that's what I would be most concerned about. Would this be a ransomware kind of thing, or would it be just, uh, hey, like it's a movie, we're going to hack in and start shutting things down? <laughs> It doesn't usually happen like movies does, but um, I think it would be a combination of types of attacks, and the the ends uh, will will uh, dictate what the means will be. So the type of attack will all be dependent on what is their ultimate goal. Is it just to create havoc? Uh, is it for profit? Depends on what they want out of it. Um, will will dictate what what they use. Uh, against us. I, mean, I was going to say, would it be likely that they would do something, if they were to do something, that would be painfully obvious to, to everybody right away? Or would these be more subtle things that it would take time for lay people to say, wait a minute, there's something funny going on here? Yeah, li likely more subtle. Um, and, and again, the sophistication of an attack, um, the more sophisticated and less obvious it is, the more expensive and the more resources on the attacker's end those kind of things take. So, uh, again, what is their ultimate goal? Uh, if they want to create something really obvious, um, they, they certainly can. That would be something more simple, like a denial of service attack where you know, nobody can get into their systems. Um, but I think, you know, the other thing you have to consider, too, is another country could easily attack and make it look like it's Russia. And then, uh, you know, we're, we're on a goose chase following the wrong leads. I was listening to someone on one of the networks the other day, and they were asking, why has Russia taken so long to do this in Ukraine itself? There were some early ones, but there hasn't been too much cyber warfare, apparently, you know, across that border. 
Um, and they're supposed to be really, really good at this. Well, they, they are. And so when you think about it, we have nuclear missiles pointed at other countries ready to go. Um, we don't fire them. They're extremely expensive and they're extremely destructive, right? There's reasons that we don't use some of the biggest and, uh, weapons that we have. Um, so Russia may be uh, holding on to some of the bigger attacks uh, and, and more uh, resource-intensive tools that they have at their disposal uh, rather than you know, shooting everything at once they may be holding that back. Damon Petraglia, a head of the Cybercrime Center, Henry Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Science, University of New Haven. Thanks. Governor Newsom signing a law to make abortions cheaper for women who have private health insurance plans. It gets rid of things like co-pays and deductibles for abortion. It's just one of many bills Democrats in Sacramento plan to pass this year regarding abortion rights. Comes ahead of a potential Supreme Court ruling this summer that uh, could overturn Roe v. Wade. Mary Ziegler, professor specializing in reproductive rights law at Florida State's University College of Law. Also, she's written books about the issue, has a new one coming out this summer called Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Mary, thanks for being with us. So we are really starting to see the uh, red state, blue state uh, chasm open up even more on this one, right, with these laws and legislatures being passed. And as the scene setter remind us, it's, what, 26 states that are already ready to go if Roe was to be overturned to either ban abortion outright or, or severely limit access? Yeah, I mean, pretty close to ban abortion outright. Um, and, and we expect that that number would increase at some point um, after Roe is gone. So we, we really are looking at two Americas, like you mentioned. Yeah, I was going to say, so where does this eventually lead? Uh, I mean, I guess you can keep coming up with cases that keep going to the Supreme Court and hope that at some point in the future, the Supreme Court might again reverse itself if it reverses itself on, on this particular case that's coming up. But is that the ultimate end result? Is that this is endless litigation? I think that it will continue. I mean, one reason to expect that it will continue is that we've seen already that um, states are not going to just simply leave each other alone. So the anti-abortion movement is already telegraphing that it's going to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hold that um, a fetus or unborn child is a person under the 14th Amendment, and that therefore abortion is unconstitutional, period. It's unconstitutional in California. It's unconstitutional in New York. So we'll see more litigation in the Supreme Court. And we've also seen some signs that states that ban abortion are going to try to stop people from traveling out of state to get abortions. And we've seen Governor Newsom suggest that maybe California is going to provide funding for people to travel from out of state to get abortion. So we're likely to see a lot of skirmishing, not just in the courts, but between states, because states are going to be interested in affecting whether or not people can travel from red states to blue states to get abortions. Yeah. And how many of those travel laws are we already starting to see? I think Oregon has one where there's actually some sort of fund that makes it easier for people to come to Oregon because the blue states are basically saying, hey, if you can't get it where you are and you're a couple states over and you're willing to come, then we want to make it as easy as possible for you. Exactly. And we've seen um, Missouri, again, this law hasn't passed, but there's a bill filed recently where Missouri was using a sort of Texas at SB8 style strategy to say, you know, if you're a doctor in California and you perform an abortion on someone from Missouri, we're going to let people sue you for that. So we've already seen this kind of tit for tat where blue states are trying to make it easier for people and then red states are trying to figure out if there's a way for them constitutionally to stop that from happening. 
So one of the things, of course, that that suggests is the idea that the sort of pipe dream that some conservatives have said, which is essentially, you know, if the Supreme Court gets rid of Roe, then this whole thing goes away and the courts are out of the business of dealing with abortion rights. And it seems pretty clear that that's not going to be the case. You know, as you know, I'm sure there were some Supreme Court justices who have said in the past that they thought that abortion was probably a topic that should have always been left to state legislatures to decide that it was a political decision all along and not uh, a court one and shouldn't have been a, a court one. Do you think that that is then, I mean, it's sort of shaping up that way, right, with this red state, blue state sort of dichotomy. But do you think that that's really where this is going to to lead to, which is just different legislatures in different states deciding different things, and that's just the way it, it will be? Well, I think the reason that argument never really held much water is that the, the anti-abortion movement doesn't want this to be left to individual states any more than the abortion rights movement does, which is why they're asking the Supreme Court to sort of weigh in again and take the abortion issue away from the states again and impose a, a solution that there's no abortion on everyone. The other reason, of course, is that we're already seeing red states and blue states not just saying, OK, we're going to do our own thing within the, the boundary California borders and Alabama, you can do your thing within your borders. We're seeing states like Missouri saying, actually, no, we want to affect what happens in California if the person doing it is from Missouri, which means it's going to be very hard for this just to be a state's rights issue when states are trying to affect what other governors and legislators are doing in their own borders. Which gets super, super messy. I mean, how do you think that works itself out? It's really hard to say because we're dealing with um, really kind of uncharted territory legally um, that, that raises constitutional questions about the right to travel and about states' ability to affect commerce in other states. And we just have very little law on that, relatively speaking. And so it's, it's pretty unpredictable, which will make it even messier because courts are going to be writing on a relatively blank slate and not really knowing what to do, which will create even more uncertainty and complexity. Do you think... A lot of people have missed this this part of the argument that that there are you know factions of, of going back and forth here where no one's happy until it's decided for everyone all at once. When in the world that you mentioned and we mentioned a couple minutes ago was that oh we thought that maybe Roe would get overturned and people had kind of come to that conclusion and then it would be a state by state thing that they would eat away at Roe rather than just making some blanket ruling for everybody. Yeah, I think people did miss that, and I think in part it's because. Um, it's easy to imagine. If you look at polling on abortion, it's very stable. And it, it seems in theory that lots of Americans would be OK with a system similar to the ones you see in Europe, right, where abortion is, is completely available and funded early in pregnancy and then less available after that, except in circumstances where there's, you know, a, a condition incompatible with life or some kind of health threat to the woman or pregnant person. Um, but of course, that's not what any of these states are offering, right? Um, it's not, I mean, red states are essentially saying what we want to do is ban abortion as much as we can, not just in our own states, but everywhere else. So the way our politics play out make it very hard to see that just leaving states to their own devices is going to result in a peaceful settlement. So if, if we're thinking about, you know, the the road to a kind of more functional abortion politics, like reversing Roe is not going to get us there. And there need to be a lot of other steps that would probably have to come first. Mary Ziegler, professor uh, specializing in reproductive rights law at uh, Florida State University and the book that's coming out this summer, Dollars for Life, Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Mary, thanks. 
This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you got a baby, a toddler, a preschooler, and you want the kid to get a COVID shot, Moderna might have some good news. Company says its vaccine it works in the little kid age group, and it's going to ask the American and European regulators for approval. But the effectiveness in preventing infection is not terribly high, only about 44% during the Omicron surge. With us now is Dr. Lisa Hung, who is a pediatrician at Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So we're almost kind of in the same situation, it seems to me, with toddlers as we are and have been with adults. That being that a lot of people incorrectly, I think, think that these COVID vaccines are supposed to stop people from ever getting infected when they were really designed to stop serious illness. So I'm wondering whether parents are going to look at these figures and say, why subject my kids to possible side effects when they still may get cold-like symptoms? You're absolutely right. Um, Vaccines, the goal of the vaccine is to prevent you from going into the ICU, prevent serious illnesses, prevent complications and death. And so even though these numbers are not as high as we have seen in the past with other vaccines and other older variants, it is still statistically significant. And we have to remember that while you may still get the disease with uh, with these numbers, these efficacy numbers, the important thing is that you will not get, or the hope is that it will protect you against serious complications. And even on the other side, with the just infection, something's still better than nothing, at least while masks are off in schools and, and that's all going on now? That's absolutely correct. With the mask mandates being lifted, uh, both in the school and also in all public indoor areas, it is a very important part of protecting this group that. Even till now, we have no other vaccines for them against COVID. Okay, so how do you respond to, and and I'm predicting uh, that you're going to have parents who are going to say this, who will say, why would I want to give a vaccine that's still, you know, the old argument, right? It's still kind of experimental and it's still kind of new to a mere infant uh, who doesn't have a choice in the matter, isn't it better to just wait and see what happens? You know you're going to hear that. Yes, yes. We hear that every day with a lot of other vaccines as well. So you're right. uh, While it's still new in the uh, phase and testing, um, the the group that was tested on has been over almost 7,000 kids that were was tested on. So the process is in place. It is a rigorous process. And the approval process also a rigorous process. So I would say that it's not easy to get things approved. So once things are approved, first, it has to be shown that it's safe. Second, it has to be shown that there is some effectiveness. And so it has to go through that. And then the other question that you had about the other comment was, well, why, why should we give it to them if they may just get uh, mild disease? Yeah, maybe, but there are a lot of kids that can get severe illnesses from COVID. Even though they, it's not as high as in the adults, it's not something that we can just uh, ignore. Over 400 kids aged zero to four have died from COVID, and even more if we include other uh, childhood groups, age groups. And the scariest thing about COVID for children is that sometimes some of these complications that they experience, so a lot of these kids who have complications or who were hospitalized did not have any other comorbidities or underlying conditions. Two thirds of them were completely previously healthy. So it's really hard for us to predict which child will have just sniffles and which child will have more complicated uh, disease process. Well, plus you don't want to run the chance of, of long COVID, right? And, and that's, that's right. going to and screw up the whole childhood. Yes, and we are seeing that some kids do have long COVID symptoms. For the flip side of the skeptical parents, how many do you think you're going to rush in and be like, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for this. I'm so happy it's finally here, assuming we get there. 
Well, there will be a, a large group that is very excited. And then of course there are some who, you know, uh, will still wait. And so we're happy to discuss anything. We're ready in the pediatrics offices, pediatrician offices to discuss all possibilities. I have a child who's who's under five, so I'm very excited and I can't wait till you know we do have a solution for them because this is the one of the main groups that still remains unprotected, especially now that we're removing all the other protections and restrictions. Dr. Lisa Hong, pediatrician, Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. If you happen to work in uh, showbiz in this town, when I say the following, you're going to probably go, uh, yeah, duh. But the Academy Awards are Sunday. Oh, those are happening again? <laughs> yeah. Hollywood Boulevard's closed. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Happens every year. Preparations, almost every year, actually. Preparations uh, already being made outside the Dolby Theater in Hollywood as the awards show looks to get back to normal as COVID cases are on the decline here in Southern California and much of the U.S. But, of course, everything isn't quite normal. There is the war in Ukraine. It has the world's attentions. Will the Oscars adjust the production because of that? Clayton Davis, Variety's Film Awards editor, co-host of Variety's The Take, is with us. Clayton, thank you. So we've done this before. We've seen this kind of thing before, and we've wondered it before. Most recently with COVID, right? And how do you kind of uh, shift your tone when the pandemic is happening? How do you shift it with a war going on? Because, you know, the Oscars is supposed to be a big party, glitz and glam and all that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be obviously difficult to not acknowledge, you know, the atrocities that are going on across the globe and across the world, which is, you know, it's having an effect on everyone, both, you know, our spiritual minds as well as, you know, voters, the way they voted this year, which is why I think certain films are are front-running the way they are. People are looking for some hope for the future, but I expect that we're going to hear it acknowledged a lot in speeches. They have to acknowledge it during the telecast. Um, we will know that there's a horrible situation happening uh, in Ukraine. But no matter how you do it, though, aren't the optics kind of bad? And look, and I, and I get that it's big money and, and the people who, of course, work in the industry, it's their big night and nobody wants to take that away from them. And certainly the, you know, ABC makes a ton of money on the Oscars in terms of they hope ratings and sponsorships. That all being said and all being true is there any way for the optics to really look good? I mean, a bunch of rich people in glittering outfits, uh, you know, accepting awards uh, on a night when people are, are dying left and right in Ukraine in a horrible war. And almost 2,000 people a day, 1,600 roughly, in this country still dying every single day from COVID. How do the optics ever look good? I mean, my, my only answer to that is there's always something terrible happening that not everyone's aware of you know you know there's been atrocities happening in syria for a really long time and you know we held ceremonies we held uh events you know the what they need to do and what they probably did too much of last year is that they can't pretend like it's not there you know they have to acknowledge that that there is something going on but that's what a platform like the academy awards like any of these event shows are for you know, can be utilized to bring awareness to something that maybe people don't know. And while we're on this program right now and are aware of these uh, events going on, truth is not everyone in the world does. And there's a lot of people that are still going about their day to day and probably have no idea what's happening in Ukraine or have misinformation about what started it and, and what's going on. So the optics are always going to, you're never going to please everyone. 
but I think it's important that we try to get to some semblance of normalcy, uh, whatever that was prior to the pandemic. So here's a question that comes to mind. I, I'm guessing that a lot of the performers and others are going to say all kinds of probably nasty things about uh, Putin, and probably rightly so. But mm-hmm. I also I also wonder if they would be that brave if it were, say, I don't know, China, which is a huge market, as you know, for U.S. films. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's a really good point. It's a good question. Um, maybe, maybe not. You know, listen, I don't think China has had, you know, its hands clean in terms of human rights, uh, uh, the way they treat their their people there sometimes. So I think that's a fair assessment and a fair statement to make. However, you know, someone like Putin, who is really committing murder daily, and, you know, I, I remember just seeing, reading yesterday a 95-year-old man who sur- who survived the Holocaust died in Ukraine. Like, he saw one Hitler and then it, it died at the hands of, you know, someone that feels like another in, in many ways. So I, I think there's a lot of noise happening, and we need to do something to help those people that are under attack to just exist. It, it's, a, it's a horrible situation. Does it show up in the show as like a planned produced kind of thing or is it kind of like the sag awards where michael keaton gets up and, and as part of his speech he starts talking i would definitely say it's going to be part of speeches for sure i don't know if it would be planned and produced i mean uh there was talk uh, amy schumer who's one of the three hosts this year talked about possibly um trying to get Zelensky to to come in for the ceremony not come in but uh to zoom in or to conference him in for the ceremony and you know, there was pushback, obviously, which I think that was probably bad optics, you know, of, you know, I think he has bigger things to worry about. Yeah, he's got other stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I think there will be an acknowledgement of it. I, I don't think that they will harp on it because Will Packer is looking to entertain an audience and try to grow out that, that, you know, try to get that decline upward in their ratings. Last year, it was the most uber serious ceremony (laughs) that's ever been produced in the history of ever. So I think we need fun and we need some type of escapism uh, because, you know, we can acknowledge what's happening, but still need to feel like I can find joy again. Okay, so now prediction time. Uh, Do you think that there is going to be a huge audience for this show? A lot of the movies, as you all well know, uh, didn't exactly resonate with a lot of the public. Yeah, I, I'm one that believes that the the movies don't equate to the ratings. I think that's always been a, a, a misconception. Like they need to nominate more popular movies in order to get people watching. No, people just want to watch an entertaining show. They want to like have fun. Not everyone watches uh, football. There are a lot of people who don't watch a single game, but they tune in for the Super Bowl. Why? Because they've cur- NFL has curated an experience around that that includes a halftime show, what commercials are played, you know, who's going to sing the national anthem, etc. So, but when, but I, when was the last time the Oscars was a truly just, <laughs> entertaining <laughs> show? Thinking. Well, so, so everyone like just assumes high, it's going to be boring and long. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the, the highest ratings on record are the 1997, 1998 ceremony for the 97 movies. That was the year of Titanic. Um, the second most watched ceremony, believe it or not, 
was 82 when they had multiple hosts, Liza Minnelli, Walter Matthau, and it was here Gandhi won. And you can't tell me that people were tuning in to watch Gandhi win Best Picture. <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, you, you curated an experience around it. And I think every award show, this is not unique to the Oscars, every award show is having their come to Jesus moment. Every, everyone is seeing their, their ratings plummet. And I think you're going to continue to see people look for ways to engage this TikTok generation that consumes content differently. You, me, everyone in Dupree, we remember tuning in for the Oscars because we hadn't seen Halle Berry in like, you know, six months. Now there's, there's Twitter and Facebook. We can see the celebrities whenever we so, want. So can we, can we have you back next week to tell us what went wrong? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yes. I, I will tell you what went wrong and what, what they did right. I mean, okay. listen, I, I have a good going list of things that can make it great. And I'm hoping that they read it and start taking notes. All right. All we'll right. see you on, uh, on Monday. <laughs> Clayton Davis, <laughs> Variety's film editors, uh, film awards editor and a co-host of The Take for Variety. Thanks Clayton, thanks. All right. Uh, Wait, more... we'll, we'll do a whole like hour on what went uh, wrong. Let's go. <laughs> nah, it'll be fine. All right. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> more in depth tomorrow. 